Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whatever you are, and welcome to stories of your and yours, soon to be known as Ink and Ash. My name is Sean Ennis, and today we'll hear about different things that can affect one's sanity, but probably not in the way that you're thinking. Now, today marks the second episode in which we've gained a new patron. Last week, we welcomed Lawrence into the elite patrons of Stories of Your and Yours. Lawrence is our first UK patron, by the way. And today, we say hello to Robert. Welcome, Robert, and thank you so much for your support as a patron at the storyteller level. You can see the benefits of being a patron and join Robert, Lawrence, Dan, Nick, Kayla, Moxie, Ken, Alan, Rob, Nate, Julio, and Vanessa over at patreon.com slash syypodcast. And by the way, I mentioned Nick among the patrons. That's Nick Haskins. Nick was one of the epic film guys, but now he is going from one of my favorite subjects, movies, to another of my favorite subjects, food. If you don't know about it yet, check out Nick's new podcast, Nikolai's Kitchen. That's N-I-K-O-L-I apostrophe S. The show is all about positivity and great recipes. In fact, it was either the first or second episode where a skirt steak with chimichurri was featured, and I still need to make that. And speaking of food, we haven't checked in with the Searchlight recipe book for a few weeks, but we'll do that on the next episode here on the main feed, just in time for Christmas. And speaking of Christmas, I am full of segues today. The next episode here on the main feed will be a Christmas-themed story, and so will the next installment of Simply Stories over on the Patreon feed, where new patrons Lawrence and Robert will now be able to hear a Christmas ghost story, namely The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood. You may know that ghost stories are an age-old tradition at Christmas time. Indeed, Mamilius from Shakespeare's The Winter Tale proclaims, A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. So I'm doing my part to resurrect that tradition for my dear patrons, and if you remember the empty house from the first season, you know Algernon Blackwood can spin himself one creepy yarn. And now that we've welcomed our new patron into the fold, let's hear the latest from Apple Podcasts. If you haven't reviewed the show yet, make sure you go and leave a rating and review to help stories of your and yours increase its presence and reach more intelligent story lovers like yourselves. So, let's hear what the latest reviewer has to say. A Voice for Chilling Dreams by Matthew Sensei His voice launches the tales from the page into my dreams every night. I give more outstanding praise for the way he brings stories to life. Most definitely my favorite podcast discovery of 2020. Thank you so much, Matthew. I hope you're enjoying the back catalog along with some new episodes, and stay tuned. We're just getting started. And now on to this week's stories. This week, we hear more from our good friend Mark Twain. Of course, seasoned listeners will remember that Twain's first appearance was all the way back in Season 1, Episode 11. If you want to hear about his background, I'll post that link in the show notes, along with the link to the first Algernon Blackwood episode. But let's talk about today's stories. Our first story will be The McWilliamses and the Burglar Alarm. It was first published in 1882, and it was said to have been a response to a burglary in Mark Twain's own home. It's also said to have been a response to the annoyance he felt about his own burglar alarm. I don't know which is right, or maybe it's a combination of the two, or neither. But either way, I don't have much other information on the publication information of this story, which is typical of Twain stories. I'm not sure why it is that I have a hard time finding background on so many of them, but speaking of which, the second story today is called Punch Brothers Punch, otherwise known as A Literary Nightmare. It was published in 1876, and I don't know where, but I will give you this nugget. 
It's rumored that the bluegrass group Punch Brothers gets their name from this story, which is at least ostensibly about music. Bonus fact, copyright Moxie LaBouche, one of the Punch Brothers is Chris Thiley, who is also a member of Nickel Creek, and Nickel Creek is awesome. In particular, check out their album Why Should the Fire Die? All right, let's go through the pre-story checklist. We welcomed a new patron, read a review, talked about today's stories, and recommended some music. I think that checks all the boxes. So, with all that behind us, let's move on to this week's feature presentation. The McWilliamses and the Burglar Alarm by Mark Twain The conversation drifted smoothly and pleasantly along from weather to crops, from crops to literature, from literature to scandal, from scandal to religion, then took a random jump and landed on the subject of burglar alarms. And now for the first time, Mr. McWilliams showed feeling. Whenever I perceive this sign on a man's dial, I comprehend it and lapse into silence and give him opportunity to unload his heart said he with but ill-controlled emotion. I do not go one single cent on burglar alarms, Mr. Twain, not a single cent, and I will tell you why. When we were finishing our house, we found that we had little cash left over, on account of the plumber not knowing it. I was for enlightening the heathen with it, for I was always unaccountably down on the heathen somehow. But Mrs. McWilliam said, no, let's have a burglar alarm. I agreed to this compromise. I will explain that whenever I want a thing and Mrs. McWilliams wants another thing, and we decide upon the thing that Mrs. McWilliam wants, as we always do, she calls that a compromise. Very well. The man came up from New York and put in the alarm and charged $325 for it, and said we could sleep without uneasiness now. So we did a while, say a month. Then one night we smelled smoke, and I was advised to get up and see what the matter was. I lit a candle and then started toward the stairs and met a burglar coming out of a room with a basket of tinware which he had mistaken for solid silver in the dark. He was smoking a pipe. I said, my friend, we do not allow smoking in this room. He said he was a stranger and could not be expected to know the rules of the house. Said he had been in many houses just as good as this one and it had never been objected to before. He added that as far as his experience went, such rules had never been considered to apply to burglars anyway. I said smoke along then, if this is the custom, though I think that the conceding of a privilege to a burglar which is denied a bishop is a conspicuous sign of the looseness of the times. But, waving all that, what business have you entering this house in the furtive and clandestine way without ringing the burglar alarm? He looked confused and ashamed and said with embarrassment, I, I beg a thousand pardons, I did not know you had a burglar alarm, else I would have rung it. I beg you will not mention it where my parents may hear of it, for they are old and feeble, and such a seemingly wanton breach of the hallowed conventionalities of our Christian civilization might all too rudely sunder the frail bridge which hangs darkling between the pale and evanescent present and the solemn great deeps of the eternities. May I trouble you for a match? I said, your sentiments do you honor, but if you will allow me to say it, the metaphor is not your best hold. Spare your thigh, this kind light only on the box, and seldom there, in fact, if my experience may be trusted. But to return to the business, how did you get in here? Through a second-story window. It was even so. I redeemed the tinware at pawnbroker's rates, less cost of advertising, bade the burglar good night, closed the window <laughs> after him, and retired to headquarters to report. Next morning we sent for the burglar alarm man, and he came up and explained that the reason the alarm did not go off was that no part of the house but the first floor was attached to the alarm. This was simply idiotic. One might as well have no armor on at all in battle as to have it only on his legs. 
The expert now put the whole second story on the alarm, charged $300 for it, and went on his way. By and by, one night, I found a burglar in the third story about to start down a ladder with a lot of miscellaneous property. My first impulse was to crack his head with a billiard cue, but my second was to refrain from his attention because he was between me and the cue rack. The second impulse was plainly the soundest, so I refrained and proceeded to compromise. I redeemed the property at former rates after deducting 10% for use of the ladder, it being my ladder, and next day we sent down for the expert once more and had the third story attached to the alarm for $300. By this time the Annunciator had grown to formidable dimensions. It had 47 tags on it, marked with the names of the various rooms and chimneys, and it occupied the space of an ordinary wardrobe. The gong was the size of a washbowl and was placed above the head of our bed. There was a wire from the house to the coachman's quarters in the stable, and a noble gong alongside his pillow. Now, we should have been comfortable now, but for one defect. Every morning at five, the cook opened the kitchen door in the way of business, and rip went that gong. The first time this happened, I thought the last day was come sure. I didn't think it in bed, no, but out of it. <laughs> for the first effect of that frightful gong is to hurl you across the house and slam you against the wall, and then curl you up and squirm you like a spider on a stove lid till somebody shuts the kitchen door. In solid fact, there is no clamor that is even remotely comparable to the dire clamor which that gong makes. Well, this catastrophe happened every morning regularly at 5 o'clock and lost us three hours sleep. For mind you, when that thing wakes you, it doesn't merely wake you in spots. It wakes you all over, conscience and all. And you are good for 18 hours of wide awakeness subsequently. 18 hours of the very most inconceivable wide awakeness that you have ever experienced in your life. A stranger died on our hands one time, aid we vacated and left him in our room overnight. Did that stranger wait for the general judgment? No, sir. He got up at five the next morning in the most prompt and unostentatious way. I knew he would. I knew it mighty well. He collected his life insurance and lived happily ever after, and there was plenty of proof as to the perfect squareness of his death. Well, we were gradually fading toward a better land on account of the daily loss of sleep, so we finally had the expert up again and he ran a wire to the outside of the door and placed a switch there, whereby Thomas, the butler, always made one little mistake. He switched the alarm off at night when he went to bed and switched it on again at daybreak in the morning, just in time for the cook to open the kitchen door and enable that gong to slam us across the house, sometimes breaking a window with one or the other of us. At the end of a week, we recognized that this switch business was a delusion and a snare. We also discovered that a band of burglars had been lodging in the house the whole time, not exactly to steal, for there wasn't much left now, but to hide from the police, for they were hot-pressed, and they shrewdly judged that the detectives would never think of a tribe of burglars taking sanctuary in a house notoriously protected by the most imposing and elaborate burglar alarm in America. Now, sent down for the expert again, and this time he struck a most dazzling idea. He fixed the thing so that opening the kitchen door would take off the alarm. It was a noble idea, and he charged accordingly, but you already foresee the result. I switched on the alarm every night at bedtime, no longer trusting on Thomas's fail memory, and as soon as the lights were out, the burglars walked in at the kitchen door, thus taking the alarm off without waiting for the cook to do it in the morning. You see how aggravatingly we were situated. For months, we couldn't have any company, not a spare bed in the house, all occupied by burglars. Finally, I got a cure-up of my own. The expert answered the call and ran another ground wire to the stable and established a switch there so that the coachman would put on and take off the alarm. 
That worked first rate, and a season of peace ensued, during which we got to inviting company once more and enjoying life. But, by and by, the irrepressible alarm invented a new kink. One winter's night we were flung out of bed by the sudden music of that awful gong, and when we hobbled to the enunciator, turned up the gas, and saw the word nursery exposed, Mrs. McWilliams fainted dead away, and I came precious near doing the same thing myself. I seized my shotgun and stood timing the coachman whilst that appalling buzzing went on. I knew that his gong had flung him out too, and that he would be along with his gun as soon as he could jump into his clothes. When I judged that the time was ripe, I crept into their room next to the nursery, glanced through the window, and saw the dim outline of the coachman in the yard below, standing at present arms and waiting for a chance. Then I hopped into the nursery and fired, and in the same instant the coachman fired at the red flash of my gun. Both of us were successful. I crippled a nurse, and he shot off all my back hair. We turned up the gas and telephoned for a surgeon. There was not a sign of a burglar, and no window had been raised. One glass was absent, and that was where the coachman's charge had come through. Here was a fine mystery, a burglar alarm going off at midnight of its own accord, and not a burglar in the neighborhood. Well, the expert answered the usual call and explained that it was a false alarm said it was easily fixed, so he overhauled the nursery window, charged a remunerative figure for it, and departed. What we suffered from false alarms for the next three years, no stylographic pen can describe. During the next three months, I always flew with my gun to the room indicated, and the coachman always sallied forth with his battery to support me. But there was never anything to shoot at. Windows all tight and secure. We always sent down for the expert the next day, and he fixed these particular windows so they would keep quiet a week or so, and always remembered to send us a bill about like this. Wire, $2.15. Nipple, 75 cents. Two hours labor, $1.50. Wax, 47 cents. Tape, 34 cents. Screws, 15 cents. Recharging battery, 98 cents. Three hours labor, 2.25. String, 2 cents. Lard, 66 cents. Ponds extract $1.25, springs at $52, and railroad fares $7.25. At length, a perfectly natural thing came about. After we had answered three or four hundred false alarms, to wit, we stopped answering them. Yes, I simply rose up calmly and went slammed across the house by the alarm, calmly inspected the enunciator, took note of the room indicated, and then calmly disconnected that room from the alarm and went back to bed as if nothing had happened. Moreover, I left that room off permanently and did not send for the expert. Well, it goes without saying that in the course of time, all the rooms were taken off and the entire machine was out of service. It was at this unprotected time that the heaviest calamity of all happened. The burglars walked in one night and carried off the burglar alarm. Yes, sir, every hide and hair of it. Ripped it out, tooth and nail, springs, bells, gongs, battery and all. They took 150 miles of copper wire. They cleaned her out bag and baggage, never left us a vestige of her to swear at. Swear by, I mean. We had a time of it to get her back, but we accomplished it finally. For money. The alarm firm said that what we needed now was to have her put in right, with their new patent springs in the windows to make the false alarms impossible, and their new patent clock attached to take off and put on the alarm morning and night without human assistance. Now, that seemed a good scheme. They promised to have the whole thing finished in ten days. They began work, and we left for the summer. They worked a couple of days, and then they left for the summer, after which the burglars moved in and began their summer vacation. When we returned in the fall, the house was as empty as a beer closet in premises where painters have been at work. We refurnished and then sat down to hurry up the expert. 
He came up and finished the job and said, Now this clock is set to put on the alarm every night at 10 and take it off every morning at 545. All you got to do is wind her up every week and then leave her alone. She will take care of the alarm herself. After that, we had a most tranquil season during three months. The bill was prodigious, of course, and I had said I would not pay it until the new machinery had proved itself to be flawless. The time stipulated was three months, so I paid the bill, and the very next day the alarm went to buzzing like 10,000 bee swarms at 10 o'clock in the morning. I turned the hands around 12 hours according to the instructions and took off the alarm, but there was another hitch at night and I had to set her ahead 12 hours once more to get her to put on the alarm again. That sort of nonsense went on a week or two, then the expert came up and put in a new clock. He came up every three months during the next three years and put in a new clock but it was always a failure. His clocks all had the same perverse defect. They would put the alarm on in the daytime, and they would not put it on at night. And if you forced it on yourself, they would take it off again the minute your back was turned. Now, there's the history of that burglar alarm. Everything just as it happened. Nothing extenuated and not set down in malice. Yes, sir. And when I had slept nine years with burglars and maintained an expensive burglar alarm the whole time, for their protection, not mine, and at my sole cost, not a doggone cent could I get them to contribute, I just said to Mrs. McWilliams that I had had enough of that kind of pie, so, with her full consent, I took the whole thing out and traded it off for a dog, and shot the dog. I don't know what you think about it, Mr. Twain, but I think those things are made solely in the interest of the burglars. Yes, sir, a burglar alarm combines in its person all that is objectionable about a fire, a riot, and a harem, and at the same time had none of the compensating advantages of one sort or another that customarily belong with that combination. Goodbye, I get off here. Punch Brothers Punch by Mark Twain Will the listener please to cast your ear over the following lines and see if you can discover anything harmful in them. Conductor, when you receive a fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. A blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare. A buff trip slip for a six-cent fare. A pink trip slip for a three-cent fare. Punch in the presence of a passenger. Chorus. Punch, brothers, punch with care. Punch in the presence of a passenger. I came across these jingling rhymes in a newspaper a little while ago and read them a couple of times. They took instant and entire possession of me. All through breakfast they went waltzing through my brain, and when at last I rolled up my napkin I could not tell whether I had eaten anything or not. I carefully laid out my day's work the day before, thrilling tragedy in the novel which I am writing. I went to my den to begin my deed of blood. I took up my pen, but all I could get it to say was punch in the presence of the passenger. I fought hard for an hour, but it was useless. My head kept humming, a blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare, a buff trip slip for a six-cent fare, and so on and so on, without peace or respite. The day's work was ruined. I could see that plainly enough. I gave up and drifted downtown, and presently discovered that my feet were keeping time to that relentless jingle. When I could stand it no longer, I altered my step. But it did no good. Those rhymes accommodated themselves to the new step, and went on harassing me just as before. I returned home and suffered all the afternoon, suffered all through an unconscious and unrefreshing dinner, suffered and cried and jingled all through the evening, went to bed and rolled, tossed and jingled right along, the same as ever. I got up at midnight frantic and tried to read, but there was nothing visible upon the whirling page except punch, punch in the presence of the passenger. 
By sunrise I was out of my mind, and everybody marveled and was distressed at the idiotic burden of my ravings. Punch, oh punch, punch in the presence of the passenger. Two days later, on Saturday morning, I arose, a tottering wreck, and went forth to fulfill an engagement with a valued friend, the Reverend Mr. So-and-so, to walk to the Talcott Tower ten miles distance. He stared at me, but asked no questions. We started. Mr. So-and-so talked, 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 as is his wont. I said nothing. I heard nothing. At the end of a mile, Mr. So-and-so said, Mark, are you sick? I never saw a man look so haggard and worn and absent-minded. Say something, do. Drearily, without enthusiasm, I said, Punch, brothers, punch with care, punch in the presence of the passenger. My friend eyed me blankly, looked perplexed, and said, I do not think I get your drift, Mark. There does not seem to be any relevancy in what you have said. Certainly nothing sad, and yet, maybe it was the way you said the words, I never heard anything that sounded so pathetic. What is... But I heard no more. I was already far away with my pitiless, heartbreaking blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare, buff trip slip for a six-cent fare, pink trip slip for a three-cent fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. I do not know what occurred during the other nine miles. However, all of a sudden, Mr. So-and-so laid his hand on my shoulder and shouted, Oh, wake up, wake up, wake up! Don't sleep all day. Here we are at the tower, man. I have talked myself deaf and dumb and blind and never got a response. Just look at this magnificent autumn landscape. Look at it. Look at it. Feast your eye on it. You have traveled. You have seen boaster landscapes elsewhere. Come on now, deliver an honest opinion. What do you say to this? I sighed wearily and murmured, A buff trip slip for a six-cent fare, pink trip slip for a three-cent fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. Reverend Mr. So-and-so stood there, very grave, full of concern, apparently, and looked long at me. Then he said, Mark, there is something about this that I cannot understand. Those are about the same words you said before. There does not seem to be anything in them, and yet they nearly break my heart when you say them. Punch in the... How is it they go? I began at the beginning and repeated all the lines. My friend's face lighted with interest. He said, Why, what a captivating jingle it is. It is almost music. It flows along so nicely. I have nearly caught the rhymes myself. Say them over just once more, and then I'll have them sure. I said them over. Then Mr. So-and-so said them. He made one little mistake, which I corrected. The next time and the next he got them right. Now a great burden seemed to tumble from my shoulders. That torturing jingle departed out of my brain, and a grateful sense of rest and peace descended upon me. I was light-hearted enough to sing, and I did sing for half an hour straight along as we went jogging homeward. Then my freed tongue found blessed speech again, and the pent talk of many a weary hour began to gush and flow. It flowed on and on, joyously, jubilantly, until the fountain was empty and dry. As I wrung my friend's hand at parting, I said, Haven't we had a royal good time? But now I remember you haven't said a word for two hours. Come on, come out with something. The Reverend Mr. So-and-so turned a lackluster eye on me, drew a deep sigh, and said, without animation, without apparent consciousness, Punch, brothers, punch with care, punch in the presence of the passenger. A pang shot through me as I said to myself, oh, Poor fellow, poor fellow, he has got it now. I did not see Mr. So-and-so for two or three days after that. Then on Tuesday evening he staggered into my presence and sank dejectedly into a seat. He was pale, worn. He was a wreck. He lifted his faded eyes to my face and said, Ah, oh, Mark, it was a ruinous investment that I made in those heartless rhymes. 
They have ridden me like a nightmare, day and night, hour after hour, to this very moment. Since I saw you, I have suffered the torments of the lost. Saturday evening I had a sudden call by telegraph and took the night train for Boston. The occasion was the death of a valued old friend who had requested that I should preach his funeral sermon. I took my seat in the cars and set myself to framing the discourse, but I never got beyond the opening paragraph. For then the train started and the car wheels began their clack, 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 and right away those odious rhymes fitted themselves to that accompaniment. For an hour I sat there and said a syllable of those rhymes to every separate and distinct clack the car wheels made. Why, I was flagged out, as if I had been chopping wood all day. My skull was splitting with headache. It seemed to me that I must go mad if I sat there any longer, so I undressed and went to bed. I stretched myself out on my berth, and, well, you know what the result was. The thing went right along, just the same. Clack, 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 a blue trip slip. Clack, clack, clack for an eight-cent fare. Clack, 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 a buff trip slip. Clack, clack, clack for a six-cent fare. And so on, and so on, and so on. Punch of the presence of the passenger. Sleep? Not a single wink. I was almost a lunatic when I got to Boston. Don't ask me about the funeral. I did the best I could, but every solemn individual sentence was meshed and tangled and woven in and out with punch, brothers, punch with care, punch in the presence of the passenger. And the most distressing thing was that my delivery dropped into the undulating rhythm of those pulsing rhymes, and I could actually catch absent-minded people nodding time to the swing of it with their stupid heads. And Mark... You may believe it or not, but before I got through, the entire assemblage were placidly bobbing their heads in solemn unison, mourners, undertaker, and all. The moment I had finished, I fled to the anteroom in a state of bordering on frenzy. Of course, it would be my luck to find a sorrowing and aged maiden aunt of the deceased there, who had arrived from Springfield too late to get into the church. She began to sob and said, Oh, oh, he is gone, he is gone, and I didn't see him before he died. "'Yes,' I said, "'he is gone, he is gone, he is gone. "'Oh, will this suffering never cease?' "'You loved him, then? "'Oh, you too loved him.' "'Loved him? "'Loved who? "'Why, my poor George, my poor nephew!' "'Oh, him, yes, oh, yes, yes, certainly, certainly. "'Punch, punch. "'Oh, this misery will kill me. "'Bless you, bless you, sir, for those sweet words. "'I, too, suffer in this dear loss. "'Were you present during his last moments?' Uh, yes, I... Whose last moments? His, uh, the dear departed's. Uh, yes, oh, yes, 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 I suppose so. I think so. I, I don't know. Oh, certainly, I was there. I was there. Oh, what a privilege. What a precious privilege. And his last words. Oh, tell me, tell me his last words. What did he say? He said, he said, oh, my head, my head, my head. He said, uh, he said, he never said anything but punch, punch, punch in the presence of the passenger. Oh, leave me, madam, in the name of all that is generous. Leave me to my madness, my misery, my despair. A buff trip slip for a six-cent fare, a pink trip slip for a three-cent fare. Endurance can no further go. Punch in the presence of the passenger. My friend's hopeless eyes rested upon mine a pregnant minute. And then he said impressively, Mark, you do not say anything. You do not offer me any hope. But, ah me, it is just as well. It is just as well. You could not do me any good. The time has long gone by when words could comfort me. Something tells me that my tongue is doomed to wag forever to the jigger of that remorseless jingle. There, there it is coming on me again. A bull trip slip for an eight-cent fare. A buff trip slip for... 
Thus murmuring faint and fainter, my friend sank into a peaceful trance and forgot his sufferings in a blessed respite. How did I finally save him from an asylum? I took him to a neighboring university and made him discharge the burden of his persecuting rhymes into the eager ears of the poor, unthinking students. How is it with them now? Oh, the result is too sad to tell. Why did I write this article? It was for a worthy, even a noble purpose. It was to warn you, dear listener, if you should ever come across those merciless rhymes, to avoid them. Avoid them as you would a pestilence. Burglar alarms and earworms. Both can be used for good, and both can make you a little crazy at times. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Next time, don't miss this year's Christmas-themed story. And if you want an extra treat, go to patreon.com slash syypodcast and hear yourself a Christmas ghost story, too. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours, soon to be known as Ink and Ash. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If you've got a request for a short story, or if you've written your own short story that you want to submit to the show, you can do that through any of the social media channels, or you can email me at syypodcast at gmail.com. 